0: Hello and welcome to Loving Legacy. I'm your host Richard Bowne and this week I'm joined by Jonathan Hall. Hi Jonathan, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm well, thanks for having me on.
0: No worries. Now we know each other previously from uh, Jonathan Stark's group, don't we? Um, all about yeah. value-based pricing and like not billing by the hour, all that kind of stuff. I think that's we first, we first got, in, got in contact, but we realized I think quite early on that we have similar overlapping interests when it comes to DevOps in particular and software development. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that you do, you focus on various things. You've got the tiny DevOps thing going on, which we'll talk about in a bit. We've got this Go thing, which sounds very exciting as well. So maybe, yeah, you can introduce folks to what it is you do. I know you do lots of things, so please take it away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I I have, I guess, two podcasts and a YouTube channel I'm working on right now and a couple email lists. So I'm the co-host of the Adventures in DevOps podcast where we talk about different DevOps topics weekly. I'm the previous host of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. that's on hold at least for a while. And I've recently started off the new Cup of Go podcast, which is basically 15 minutes a week of Go-lang-related news. Uh, Also on that topic, I have a YouTube channel called Boldly Go, a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek Star Trek-themed Go discussion uh, and and how-to's and tutorials and stuff like that
0: brilliant and goes your yeah goes the go to thing for you right now so uh, it, yeah i've been using go for
1: about 8 years um and uh, of course there's a lot of overlap between devops and go you know go sort of started as a uh, systems programming language docker is written in go kubernetes is largely written in go um terraform helm there's a lot of devops DevOpsy tools that are written in go so there's a kind of a natural uh, overlap there
0: yeah that's something that i've always been trying to i've said to you a while ago actually six months ago oh yeah i must dig into it but i kind of got sidetracked by rust which is the other kind of go to exciting thing Mm -hmm. at the moment as well I've, i've really enjoyed that um we'll dig into go in a bit but maybe you can give us a little flavor of how you kind of got to where you are now so your kind of background and how you got into go and devops
1: yeah sure so i started my career um I guess as a as a full stack developer before, you know, in the truest sense of the word, you know, in the sense I was literally installing servers in racks and wiring them up and then writing the stored procedures that ran in Postgres and writing the back end code and writing the front end code that ran in the browser. I really got my start doing that um probably 2006. I was at a company for about nine years doing spam filtering essentially. I learned learned a lot there, sort of cut my teeth with programming, I was using Perl back then and uh, operations uh, you know it, it was shortly after I joined that company that we had a, it almost sounds like a joke but uh, it was a Black Friday incident uh, we had pushed an update to some a bunch of clients 150 or so of our clients and broke them all and wow. uh, had to spend two, two or three days trying to to pick up the pieces there it turns out the problem was an execute bit had not been set on a little shell script it was literally a one bit mistake that uh, kind of opened my eyes to the uh, idea of how do we build software in a way that avoids these mistakes, which I have come to realize is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so, rather, since it's impossible to avoid mistakes, how do we how do we live a sane life in a world where those mistakes are bound to happen? And so that's kind of how I got into DevOps. So, you know, I, I like to say it was a single bit that that pushed me into that career.
0: No, it's interesting that because I had very much the same experience. Kind of like you get to a point where you get well, but my, my true actually was uh from university going straight into software engineering. I was an electrical engineer by trade, went straight into software engineering, and then uh, I burnt myself out in like a year and a half because I was so excited for the fact that I actually finally had the chance to do this thing professionally, get paid for it, like fiddling around with computers, which was just a brilliant thing to do, that I just went insane. Um, because insane just trying to get everything perfect. Um, and then realizing very quickly that, oh, you can't because <laughs> it's because you're on pager duty and you wake up in the middle of the night, you come in, you're, you're tired already, you make mistakes and then you realize, yeah, people make mistakes and people are, are going to make mistakes because things are always changing either in infrastructure, configuration, or in, in terms of requirements. So yeah, I think any sane person essentially comes to, and maybe I shouldn't use the word sane, but any person who comes to realization, um, about themselves, Freezy software realizes that you have to limit mistakes as much as possible.
1: As I say, that, that's that's kind of how I got my start. Um, since then, uh, I, w- I was there about nine years. I moved on to, uh, I guess, I moved to the Netherlands after that uh, job. I got married, moved to the Netherlands, worked at Booking.com for a year, and during that time was learning Go on the side. And uh, then after about a year or so at Booking, I, I got a job doing full-time Go development, which was quite exciting. Um, and I've been doing Go development either professionally or on the side ever since. You know, I've been in a couple of management roles that weren't Go related uh, in, in that interim time. But to really enjoy Go. It seems to be a simple language, it has a lot of things I like about it, and uh, and it and as I mentioned earlier, it really ties into the DevOps sort of uh, tooling and so on. So there's a natural overlap with, with what I like to do.
0: So you already had that kind of like exposure towards um, being a DevOps person essentially before devops was, was even invented then seeing the kind of yeah. the team take over some of the infrastructure stuff so you've seen it kind of both sides i suppose so how did that kind of progress yeah. then into uh, this, into the tiny devops thing that you're, you're you've got now
1: yeah so e- even at booking.com i was frequently frustrated by the uh the lack of streamlining they had around deployments uh a deployment the deployment process at booking.com at least for the product i was working on on a good day, if everything went well, it would take three to four hours of about four or five people doing the deployment and, and trying to you know, test things and, and so on. It was a big thing. It definitely was not continuous delivery in the sense of like, just push something and it'll magically be in production soon. Um, so you know I had gone from this small team of basically three developers to deploying whenever we wanted to, to booking.com where it took four or five people, three hours when nothing went wrong and frequently mm-hmm. things went wrong. Sometimes deployments would take two or three weeks, uh, so it's just a night and day difference, uh, and I and I didn't like it. <laughs> uh, I, I did try to help improve things at Booking.com a little bit, but uh, you know I kind of felt like I was being crushed under the wheel of of industry or something. You know, it was just this massive behemoth of of a uh, 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 of technology that was difficult for one person, especially if somebody new at the company, to make a significant difference. Um, and then I, I got the opportunity to to do go professionally, which is really why I left. I didn't leave because of these frustrations per se. I left because I had an opportunity to go somewhere else. Um, and it was a it was a smaller company again, uh, not quite as small as I was used to, but, but you know maybe maybe fifty people or something in the company. And so you know, once again, I was sort of back in that small side of things where I where I, I could make a difference and I could implement uh, you know improvements that that I would see uh, would, would take hold and, and be useful. So that's kind of how I realized that tiny uh, in, in the sense of like small headcount, small teams is kind of where I wanted to focus. Uh, you know, I, I part of it's just, I feel a better opportunity to make a difference. Um, there's less momentum uh, uh, that works against change. And since then, I've worked in a number of small startups where you can really have a big difference. You know, if, if you're, if you're employee number 10. Uh, You have, you know, in theory, a ten percent influence on how things are done. Mm -hmm. If you're employee number one thousand, you have a point one percent influence on how things are done. It's just a big difference that way.
0: Yeah, I get that completely. My my track has been very different. I've always kind of really worked in larger, much larger, global kind of companies from telecoms, banking, and stuff. But I see exactly the same story, Um, and of course. There's a kind of a flip side to that as well, which I was thinking of when you were talking there. Which is, if you do get to influence in an enterprise, then the impact can be much larger. Sure. Um, however, that does is it's very difficult to to get that turned around because of that so many more people have interest in this stuff. I've worked in some very interesting companies where they have done really quite cool things or attempted to do quite quite cool things. From a career, twenty five years or so, there are maybe a handful of occasions like that where you actually do happen to make a a, a particular difference in a particular job. I also see that at quite small scales as well, you know? So you can, because you can almost get into a point where people are just butting heads over the smallest detail, you know? So how do you find that translates into moving forward with something that you want to do for the good of the product or the good of the customer almost when it becomes comes to two techies saying, no, we should do it this way or we should do it that way. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always opinions. I mean, that's one of the, purses or benefits of working in this industry you know people have have strong opinions and uh that that can be good or bad
0: how
1: how do you deal with that I mean I often say that the hardest part of our job isn't the technology it's the people and I I think that really shines in an example like this you know if you have two or three or or 12 engineers who can't agree on tabs versus spaces or whatever then you, you just have to Use your soft skills to 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 work through the problem. I mean, there's there's not a right or wrong answer necessarily. Sometimes there is, or, or, or not. You know, often there's there's more gray area than there is black and white in in this industry. Really, it's usually a matter of trade offs, and somebody values one thing over another. Uh, are you talking tab spaces, microservices versus monoliths, uh, serverless? You know, all these things. There, mm-hmm. There's there's good reasons to do most of them, and the only way through that is to, I think, treat your other colleagues with respect and hear them, understand them, and and come to some kind of conclusion. There's not a there's not a magic bullet, and there's not a book you can point to that gives you the right answers all the time.
0: Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, and in some ways, though that is a kind of comp- a technical compromise that we come to, which kind of belies the point that there's a customer outside waiting for us to kind of create something. And that's one of the things that I kind of one of my frustrations that I have with DevOps really is that it's even though. I agree fundamentally with all of the things that one should do, whether it be automated testing or TDD or CICD or whatever acronym or part or piece of DevOps that you could argue is is important or not. You can do all those things, fine, but where does the customer fit into that picture? Um, And how does that, I mean, I think I like your approach. Maybe you can go into it a little bit more um, about keeping it quite minimal, keeping it quite simple. And that can apply not just to small teams, but also to, to larger teams, I think, shouldn't count it?
1: Yeah, I I believe so. Um, I mean, I, I think that the customer is... It, it's kind of invisible in DevOps. Have, there's different ways to to visualize DevOps. The infinity sign with the different steps is one or the three ways of DevOps. And the customer doesn't really take a center seat in any of those, which is unfortunate. But I do think that we can remember that the customer is the reason we're doing those things. It, it, if If our customer isn't being served, then... Yeah, automated testing and CICD or, and whatever are, are pointless. Uh, you know, it, uh, m- maybe you know in a way that's different than from Agile. You know, Agile talks about the customer in the manifesto and in the 12 principles, the customer is mentioned there. And DevOps doesn't really have that. Um, but it should. And and the customer needs to be there. The only reason we do DevOps is to serve the customer. So as long as we can remember to keep that in mind, I think that we're okay. Um but there is a danger and, and, and it's a danger that I see happening all the time. Uh, it's not the only danger either, but, you know, people just doing quote, doing DevOps because, because it's fun or because it's cool or because their job title says so or whatever. Um, and forgetting, you know, one of the common things I see is people automating stuff before they even know what it's supposed to be doing. Mm. Uh, you know, make sure that you know what, what, what you want to automate. Don't just automate because your, your job title is automations engineer or or something like that. Uh, automation happens to serve a purpose what is that purpose and and are you serving it
0: yeah indeed but i think as you point out there i mean automation engineer is a thing or devops engineer is a thing and often we get to we get so obsessed with the the how that we forget the why and all the other w's mm-hmm. or h's in between as well um and i think that's an important takeaway from the way the industry is right now and some somehow i, kind of, I keep on return to this theme in 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 this podcast, because I do like to kind of get on my soapbox as well as my guests, as you've noticed, um, <laughs> to, to actually say, well, yeah, is the industry in inverted commas helping us by by turning so much of what DevOps and CICD is about um, into tooling, which we feel that we need to implement, essentially, because that's what everyone does. So we have our Jira's, we have our Azure DevOps, we have Kubernetes, we have whatever else, you know? Um, we get to a point where potentially, and something that struck me when you were talking, there just about, yeah, automating before we even... Uh, get to implementing any functionality and knowing if that's even right. It's totally a thing as well. Building a pipeline before you've even implemented any functionality, which some may argue is actually a really good way of going about things. If you want to lint and make sure you have high quality before you get anywhere. But yeah, it's always that that kind of two steps forward, one step back kind of feeling that you're kind of making progress in some areas. And yet, at the same time, we're still talking about the same problems we had 20 or 30 years ago. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that there's a natural human tendency to seek the easy answers. You know, this is why diet pills are popular or people put treadmills in their office, or, you know, whatever. You know, you know I, I'm not really willing to do the work to, to lose weight or to get in shape. But, oh, here's a pill or, or a, a quick fix. And we we have the same exact problem in the, the world of software engineering DevOps uh, agile whatever uh you know certification mill is is working very well to pump out certifications related to scrum or to to AWS or to whatever uh and you know I know why it's attractive to the to these executives and and, and even to individuals it's attractive to to say okay if I do this course I'm going to have the skills I need to do this thing or if I hire these these credentials, uh on my team then we can be efficient you know it, it makes perfect sense why this happens the unfortunate truth is that life isn't that simple life isn't as simple losing weight is not as simple as a diet pill delivering software the customers need is not as simple as hiring somebody with the right set of letters after their name uh it, it requires a lot more than that and there are companies of course that recognize that and they're doing well for the most part uh many of them uh and there are companies that don't recognize that and you know some of them are still surviving anyway uh, if they have large enough margins uh, to to sort of hide the the noise under the under the rug or whatever, yeah, I think it's human nature, and it's it's frustrating, but it's also expectable.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, there's got to, almost to the point now where there's almost too, too much software in the world. You know, there's the the famous mm-hmm. quote, "Software is eating the world." Whatever it, it is, you know. But how much do we need? <laughs> Isn't it? Because that's the one thing that I <laughs> I look at when I look at a solution. That I, I don't want to write any more software. I want to write less software. And if you've got less software, you've got less exposure, you know, but this has been argued since before podcasts was invented, you know, since before, for time immemorial, when I first started, the, the old guys, the old grey haired guys like me now would be saying to me exactly the same things like, well, what, just think about it first, you know, rather than leaping in there. But people want to prove themselves too. So young engineers, they want to come in, they, they want to measure themselves in lines of code. It's just the way they are, or, or the way life is, because that, that that is the feeling you want to get. You want to cut your teeth on something. So how do you approach Mm -hmm. that? I mean, yes, this is a tricky question, I know, but how do you approach that with young people who are very excitable and want to kind of like grab onto something and just tear it apart and create loads of code?
1: Uh, uh, You know, I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. Um, Since I tend to work more often with smaller, younger companies, one common piece of advice I often give them is to hire one senior instead of two juniors. But that's not sustainable. You know, I mean, when you're early stage, I think that makes sense. But it's not a sustainable approach at, from an industry standpoint. Maybe, maybe some companies can accomplish that. But from an industry standpoint, we need a way to bring uh inexperienced developers up to speed responsibly. And we're failing miserably at that, I believe. Uh, you know, we have we have a lot of developers who, you know, a, a three-month boot camp can't do it. Uh a computer science degree also can't do it. You know, we have a huge gap in our educational system. I think, just as an industry, uh, teaching the necessary skills. How many, how many junior developers have you worked with who understood how Git works? That's an essential skill that is not being taught properly. You you generally learn that on the job. There are courses you can take, uh, I suppose, or or books you can read, but it's not part of any standardized education I've ever seen. How to how to properly manage branches, or even just use Git. Or how to write a user story is a useful example. You know That's something most people get wrong all the time. And uh, for, for there's just so many of these things that, that aren't writing code, but that are maybe even more important than the code itself. The mm-hmm. code is a liability. And, and I, mature developers, I think, understand this, that code is a liability. It has to be maintained. Uh, it often has to be deleted or, or reworked or whatever. Um, the less code you have, the safer your company is in the long run the less expensive developers you need to maintain that code uh so yeah if you can hire developers who write less code you're going to generally uh, you know all else being equal you're going to come out ahead uh but that's not the way we think and and develop you know re- learning to write simple efficient code is a skill that isn't taught well and learning to do all the soft skills are not even the soft skills but the other technical skills around software development such as workflow management and how to use git properly and how to do deployments and how to run a linter you know all these sorts of things mm-hmm. you kind of pick up on the job but that's 80 percent of the job really
0: well i think it would just put everyone off wouldn't it if, you, if they know that straight away yeah because it, it, it that's might it. be but there, there is a lot of the boilerplate yeah. there and that's the point it's um and yeah, source control is is still a mystery to many i i would say i I've, I've been in that situation where i've been teaching people to use git in in in, organi- in existing large organisations and developers a lot of developers don't use source control or if they do they or they, they only do it because they're told to not necessarily that they see the benefit um we're getting a little bit off the, uh, away from go <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's talk about so then devops and becoming a senior developer and having all that experience of deploying things and wanting to make, make things bulletproof, repeatable, and good for your customer. So, yeah, how does Go, I mean, maybe give us a little history of Go because well, you've mentioned some really tantalizing things that you said. It's, uh, Kubernetes is written in it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, T- Terraform as well, did you mention, or was it just HashiCorp? Terraform generally? is written in
1: Go. Uh, HashiCorp does a lot of stuff in Go. Of course, Go came out of Google. They invented Go. Um as Legend has it, and it's probably true or largely true, um, three three of their developers were sitting around waiting for C to compile and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could make a faster version of this?
0: You could whittle <laughs> then, a cricket bat in that time as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and thus Go was born. Uh so you know, it comes from out of Google, where uh, you know, systems programming is kind of a broad, fuzzy term, but you know, it's not games programming, it's not scripting, you know, it's it's building systems, network systems of some sort. Um and so you know go has been largely used at google and then it's been used in a lot of other places too uh, google uh, i don't actually know if they officially created kubernetes but they certainly were an inspiration for kubernetes uh so i think you know that that's a natural evolution there docker's written in go um the 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 main reason i like go as a language though is that it's so simple to the syntax is very simple uh and and contrast this to Perl, which is kind of the polar opposite end of the the spectrum where Perl has uh, a for loop and a while loop and an until loop and a a do loop. And I think they have post fix versions of each of those. So there's like 10 or 12 different ways to do loops in Perl and go, you have one and only one. So you don't have all this extra syntax to learn to do loops. You just learn one way to do a loop Uh, going back to that topic. Uh, if you're joining a, a new team and you're maybe fresh out of university or you've just done a boot camp or something like that, if you join a brand new team that's doing Java or Perl, God God bless you, good luck. <laughs> if you're joining a brand new team uh, and, and they're doing Go, you, you're, you have things to learn, of course. You, everyone does. But at least the syntax won't be causing you to scratch your head every morning. And that's honestly, I think, the biggest benefit to Go. Uh, I mean, it is fast. It does compile quickly. It has a lot of other benefits too, but the biggest single benefit, if all those other things went away, if it took me hours to compile Go, I would still love the fact that uh, I can take a a group of juniors and seniors and put them together and they can be productive together uh, without having to spend months ramping up the juniors to to understand uh, all the whatever archaic syntax in the language
0: because hmm. so, when i looked at rust for example i love cargo i love the package management around around oh. um rust and i fell in love with it immediately and then i i looked at go and i found it slightly more complicated so or, or i didn't find my entry point straight away so does it exist and is there one version or how give us a, a flavor of that
1: how recently did you look at go
0: um it was very briefly about six months ago I think. okay
1: that's recent enough uh go recently recently in the last few years has change the way they do package management drastically so i don't know how rust does it i haven't looked at rust part of the reason i haven't looked at rust is i'm afraid i would like it too much mm. <laughs> and i don't want to distract myself to something else uh you know i want to focus um but go, I mean, go does handle package management um in a in a somewhat atypical way uh basically uh, any url can be a go package so you can upload your go package to a url and the url is the name of the package most of those packages start with github.com or similar uh, but they don't have to you can host a go package on your own website if you want to just put a little bit of metadata in the in the HTML and, and you have a go package um so that's that's nice because uh you never have naming conflicts you know you're not going to have two people who name their package the same thing uh since the URL makes it kind of unique uh, but it uh it has uh it, it does trick people up sometimes uh especially if you're trying to create your own Go package for the first time, Um, it's not always obvious how to do that. It's actually simple, but it's not obvious uh, how to do that. So I do see that tripping up new people a lot.
0: I mean, the thing I like about Rust package management is it's just very simple um, and similar to MPN. It's kind of there in your your main directory, basically. So it's, it's very obvious where your package and your dependencies are. When you think about DevOps, that's always at the top of my mind is like how am I going to replicate this environment somewhere else? So if it's all there in one directory, perfect. You know, I can just deploy that somewhere.
1: That's a first class concern with the Go package management system. And although it doesn't it, it can, you can vendor your dependencies locally if you want to, it's not actually required to to guarantee reproducible builds. So it uses a, a combination of version numbers and checksums and so on to and the proxy to ensure that you have reproducible builds even without keeping duplicate source code everywhere. The standard toolkit includes all the package management for you. So there's no extra third parties to to install okay. like there are with npm or yarn on, on JavaScript. It's all part of go, the Go tool, the Go uh yeah, I guess it's EXE on Windows or whatever, but you could you type Go build, go mod, etc. There's a bunch of different subcommands in that go, uh
0: that go tool. They handle awesome. all that for you. So what what typically do you cover in the podcast and on the on the YouTube channel?
1: So on the podcast, it's uh, the news. Uh, we talk we spend fifteen minutes talking about whatever's changed in the Go community in the last week, new releases of Go itself when that happens, or popular packages and stuff like that, uh, upcoming conferences, that sort of deal. Uh, and then on my YouTube channel, uh, it's more uh, it's more educational material. Tutorials, some interactive code reviews I've, or or code roasts, as I call them, where I review someone else's code and talk about here's the things I would look for, here's the things I would change if I were, say, going to hire them for uh, a job, uh, if this was a job application. Um, and uh, I've done a bunch of book reviews lately. So if you're learning, if you're thinking of learning Go, maybe check out some of those book reviews to see which book you should
0: read. Awesome. Definitely will. I'll check out your channel as well. Well, um, one last thing. And so we touched on DevOps, we touched on Go. Um, yeah, so just tell me again one time about your your DevOps thing, because I know you kind of, you you like to implement devops kind of backwards don't you yeah, C- yeah. C- cd backwards so right. i want to hear a little bit more about this as well
1: yeah so i'm sure i'm not the first person to think of this but i've never seen anybody else spell it out so um i've i've been making sort of an effort of educating people on the idea of implementing continuous delivery in reverse um i have a i did a talk at agile day vienna last year okay. in september on the topic which uh, was well received um just to paint a brief picture, uh, I think the way most people think of continuous delivery and continuous deployment, uh, if they want to implement on their team is, okay, first, we need to write a whole bunch of tests. Let's do that. Let's write a whole bunch of tests. Make sure that we get our test suite good enough, whatever that means, uh, that we're confident that we can we can effectively fire our manual testers. Maybe they're not actual people. Maybe it's the developers doing their manual testing, whatever the case is, but that we can stop relying on manual testing. Let's do that. Once that's done, then we'll set up continuous integration and then we'll set up continuous delivery. And then if we're, if we're really ambitious, we'll set up continuous deployment and actually start deploying that code into production every time we make a change. So I, I think that's the natural progression that most people go through. It certainly is the one I went through when I first heard about the idea of deploying to production every day. It's like, okay, how how many months are we going to spend writing tests before we get there? The problem with that approach is that nobody ever gets there or almost nobody ever gets there. You never have, quote, enough tests to to be confident. So what I've done is is I've implemented it in reverse. I go the other direction. And so the the nutshell version is get your automatic build and deployment working. Forget about tests. Don't write any tests yet. Just just make sure that you have the ability to build your artifact, whether it's an exe or a Docker image or whatever. Can you build it from your Git source? every time you push to either to master or to your staging branch or whatever you have there get that automatic build and deploy working then after you have that in place start working backwards change uh, and, and start changing your your workflow so that you never merge anything into that branch whatever that's called master or or main or or staging whatever never merge anything in there until it's been tested sufficiently that you're confident in it You can still do all the manual testing you want. You can still, whatever manual steps are going on, keep doing that. Just do it before you hit that merge button, not after you hit the merge button. And this does a couple of things. The first is it makes it clear when a thing is done and ready to go to production. So you know maybe it takes six weeks of testing before it's ready, but it's clear that once you've hit that merge button, that that six weeks has passed, it's done, and now it's ready perhaps the more important but subtler thing it does is it makes it obvious where your bottlenecks are. So if you have a six-week testing bottleneck, uh, it's really easy to ignore that. If you're pushing everything into a staging branch, for example, that then gets tested and then gets merged later into master and deployed, yeah. uh, you, you kind of forget that, oh yeah, my code is still sitting there waiting along with 25 people other uh, people's other code at the same time kind of mumbled together. Uh, you know, it's easy to, to sort of overlook that bottleneck this makes the bottlenecks more obvious it makes the changes safer it does introduce pain but that pain can be a good thing if you use it to drive the right change
0: yeah also i think it's a much more time efficient way of managing that pain as well because it's very obvious what you're working on next and i really like yeah. that and i also have seen exactly that happen and play out exactly as you describing it so many times whereby we think because we're, we're told do things and we're told by jez humbles and the devops handbooks and such of this world do things in small steps and we do but we do it working forwards, because we think right, right testing is the thing we must do next, etc. And exactly as you described, we then get caught up in a loop where by our deployment cycle is so slow, so because we're, we're doing like things like tearing down and recreating the infrastructure at the same time.
1: I think the important thing to remember whenever you, whenever anybody is facing the situation like oh I'm, I can't do that yet. Ask the question why can't you do that yet? Don't just stop there. We can't do that yet. You know, ask specifically. What would have to change to get us one step closer? And, and maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe in some certain c- circumstance, it's not appropriate, but at least have the conversation, at least you're, with yourself, uh, you know, think, do the thought exercise, what would have to change to to make this possible? And then you can decide if it's worth it. Uh, so many people forget to even start there. They, they just go, oh, we can't, we're not ready yet is a common excuse to not do anything. Okay. Maybe you're not ready yet, but what's the one thing you could do that would get you one step closer to being ready?
0: Yeah. And that also comes down to, again, maybe closing the loop a little bit. How we perceive our customers, or how we perceive our job to be, really in some ways too. Because if someone's just focused on one one area of the of the of the chain when it comes to deploying software to to a customer, then that's all they're going to focus on. But if you actually see every day as an effort to try and create, move a little bit of value closer to your customer so that they can use it and provide feedback, which hopefully then helps you feel better about your job and your output, then surely everybody wins. Um, but yeah, that's probably the conversation for another another time, I would say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very good.
0: Jonathan, now, thank you so much for joining me today. Anything else you want to add before we, we wrap up?
1: You know, I, I think one thing I like to, to end on uh, frequently, um, I like that we can have these conversations. We can discuss whether we should do CI, CD, forward or backwards. This wasn't a conversation we could have 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was it was almost blasphemous to say that you could do 10 deploys in a day. Uh, And certainly nobody was questioning whether they could do it. It was more a question, is it even theoretically possible? We all now know that it is possible in theory. Google does it, Amazon does it, thousands of other companies do it. Maybe my company doesn't do it yet, but at least I'm having a conversation, how can I get there, not, is it theoretically possible? So I'm I'm encouraged by the, the way the conversation has changed over the last 10, 15 years.
0: Perfectly put, I think. I'd like to say thank you to Jonathan for him joining me today. This has been Richard Bowne on the Loving Legacy podcast. If you'd enjoyed today's episode, then please like and subscribe on your favorite platform. And until next time, I wish you goodbye and good luck.